Hello, and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 49 and our eighth episode of season two. Today, Brian and I are joined by Dr. Michelle Knight. Michelle is the Assistant Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Michelle's doctoral thesis focused on the Song of Deborah and Barak in the Book of Judges, and what it reveals to us about both the Israelites and God. It's a great conversation. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that you can find us at thebiblebistro.com, on Instagram and Facebook at The Bible Bistro, and on YouTube at Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. We've also set up a Patreon account, so if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support our continued work, you can do that. You can find a link for that in the show notes, but also by going to the website, thebiblebistro.com, and clicking on the link at the top. If you can't financially support us, you could also support the Bistro by simply sharing the podcast with others or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps as well. All right, let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Michelle Knight. Hey, Brian, welcome back. To hey, the Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I got my coffee. I'm ready yeah, to go. Like you got a haircut. I t- <laughs> nope, it just fell out and it looks perfect just <laughs> looks the way good. it is. Looks yes, good. I got a haircut. You know, you got to keep it fresh right. and looking good. Exci- this is another This is another push for our YouTube channel. As oh, well. yeah, that's true. You know, so, so I keep forgetting every time we're on video, I, I suddenly think all our all the people listening to us on on podcast can can see us now. I don't know. I don't understand this. I understand yes, how technology well, works. We made that clear before see. before the episode <laughs> began. <laughs> Speaking of which, yes. we are excited today. We have a guest in our bistro today. It's always a good day when we have a guest on. And yes, tell us about our I guest. Will. This is uh, we're we're here with uh, Dr. Michelle Knight, who is assistant professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at. Uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Michelle was a student of mine a long time ago. A long time for me wasn't that wasn't that long, but yeah. it, it seems like it. Uh, excellent student, and she was. You didn't know her, right, Ryan? You you didn't know Michelle in school, but no, I didn't. I there's a certain point. It's kind of like a black hole of memory. Like I remember, like four people, like five, maybe if I saw them on Facebook, well, and then it's just it's all. It's all anyway, lost. Michelle was an excellent student. Went on to did a lot of work. In fact, Michelle, why don't, well, I'll say welcome first of all. Yes, welcome. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, y'all. Good to have you with us. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself then. Introduce yourself, kind of uh, tell us about family and how you got to where you are. Sure. Yeah. I'll kind of give it in a narrative okay. then. Um, I did my undergrad uh, at Lincoln um, and really enjoyed working there, worked in languages quite a bit um, and biblical exposition. And then I, during my time there, just really realized my favorite thing to do um, was help people read scripture better, Mm. uh, specifically to preach. I was like co-leading a small group with some other students and they would come to me and be like, Hey, I'm writing a sermon. Can you help me think about how to phrase this and how to, how to read the text and sort it out? And I realized, man, I could teach people how to read scripture to preach. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's what seminary professors do. Perfect. I'll do that. I'll do that. So I did. So um, by God's grace, it was like really clear. And so I was just like, I'll do that then. Um, And so I, um, I went and got an MDiv because I knew if I was going to be training pastors, I yeah. needed to have that same pastoral training. Um, I did an internship in a church. Um, I spent some time there. I volunteered heavily in my church. Um, and then I went on to get a PhD in um, biblical theology with an emphasis in Old Testament studies at Wheaton College under Daniel Block. And there I got to work on the book of Judges specifically cool. and really dig in there. Um, which was great. Um, and during all this time, I was married. My husband of, was busily working me through all of these <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> upper <laughs> degrees. This poor man was like, we're done with school now, right? Like, there's no more. Like, once you've got a PhD, like, you can't not study. Right. Um, and so I was like, I promise. I, I really think we're done-ish. <laughs> um, and so... But he, you know, my husband now is a financial advisor. That's what he cool. does. We have a son. Oliver. Oliver is four um, and has a lot of really big feelings, Um, (laughs) but he's also a really bright kid and a lot of fun, but he keeps us on our toes. So that's kind of our life. Excellent. Well, like I said, it's good to have you with us. And so you mentioned the book of Judges, kind of you did your dissertation on that. And uh, we wanted to talk about that today. We thought we would 
kind of introduce the book of Judges, let you tell us a little bit about um, to our listeners what they would need to know if they're going to approach it well, kind of like what you said, if you're going to preach on this or teach it, what what are some of the things that you, you would want to know about it? So let me just kind of start out by saying, what do you think our listeners should know about the book of Judges? What would be helpful mm-hmm. to them if they're going to uh, study this book or read it? Yeah, that's really, that's a good place to start. Um, Because I think Judges is something none of us enjoys reading. I think it's pretty fair to say that it's not an uplifting text necessarily without a lot of extra mental work to get there. Um, And I think it's good for people to know that in advance, not just because it's hard, but to understand why. Uh, And so one of the first things I always tell people about Judges is this is God's people at its worst. Right. And it knows that and it says that because occasionally we come there and the impulse is to be like, okay, well, there are reasons why it was that bad or to kind of soften it a little bit. Um, uh, And that makes people feel crazy when they're reading. They're like, okay, you guys are telling me this is okay, but this really doesn't feel okay. Um, And so I think it's good for people to recognize this is supposed to be awful. So if you are reading this and you're like, this is terrible, you're right. (laughs) Right. Okay. You've got the Um, point. You've got, and so I really do think that's important, though, yeah, because people right. read that and they're like, "Man, the way people are, I can't handle the Old Testament because the way people are treated there." And I'm like, "That's good because the Old Testament also agrees right. they shouldn't be treated that right. way." So people need to understand they should expect to hate what they find in Judges, okay. and they're not wrong. Right. Okay, to hate good. it. Good. All right. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a good start. So, what? How would you give us a bird's eye view, or how would you? How do you break the book apart, yeah. or kind of a general outline of it? Totally. Well, the book of Judges kind of unfolds in three segments, if you will. Um, And this is where I can qualify my earlier statement, where the book of Judges definitely goes from pretty decent to really terrible. So there's a downward spiral or downward trajectory that you can kind of trace through the book. So at the beginning, things aren't all bad. Um, But you do get hints really early on that it's going to go that way. (laughs) And so you have the first couple chapters, plus some stray verses in chapter three, really set up the problem. They let us know what to expect. They're the introduction, if you will. And it kind of says there's going to be this cycle of sin and the steady pattern that we see in this period. And the historians kind of like, let me just prep you to understand what you're about to read and to understand these patterns that unfold. And so then the historian in like chapters three through 16 says, let me show you that pattern on the ground. One after another, we're just going to walk through all of the instantiations of this pattern. Um, And then once we get into 17 through 21, that's when the author's like, and this is the very epitome Mm, of that pattern. We see uh, all of that chaos that has been slowly building. It just unleashes here. And let me show you what are the effects of that pattern as it plays out in the people of God. Um, and so if we can trace that trajectory and understand those first two chapters are going to give us so much information about how to understand what follows right. um, and really set us up well to read the book. Um, and then the end will give us uh, kind of a sobering moment okay. to sit with it and be like, okay, this is a really terrible place to end, right. but I now understand how they got here. Mm, okay. All right. Yeah, that that helps, especially that thing you said about those last four chapters, because that's always been a difficult place to, to you know, e- even if you can show people the pattern you're saying in, in, in 3 through 16, they get to this part and they're like, oh my goodness, this is just really, really bad. It's just awful. Yeah. And I guess technically it's five chapters, so yeah. that's my bad. Math is not okay. what I do. You know what I mean? Right. I'm really in the humanities. Um, well, I, said, but, I said four chapters. You said 17 through 21. I think I did. So. But uh, yeah, yeah. But those chapters, yeah, that is where... Yeah, the, that pattern goes away, right. and it's just like the havoc that has been yeah. wreaked, oh. has been wrought. Yeah, I like what you said about that. It's uh, you know, it's you set with it, and you're kind of like, okay, here's here's where this got us. This is this is where we are. That's good. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. so how do you understand the historical background of the book, or maybe the other way I'll, I'll put this, depending on how you want to how you want to address this, is how does it how does it fit in with the the other books of scripture around it or in, in the canon? Yeah. Well, it depends on which canon we're talking about. Um, If we're talking about the English canon, so if we're talking about the English Bible that most of us pick up and read on a daily basis, it's coming after Joshua, before Ruth, before Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth isn't there, but that's okay. Um, The following Joshua is probably the most important thing we have to recognize. Joshua and Judges really work together to give us a full picture of what went on in this period. 
This is the period after the Pentateuch. So after God had said, I'm going to bless this nation. I'm going to build up this people. I'm going to rescue them and I'm going to bring them to the land. Well, the Pentateuch ends with him not quite having brought them to the land. We get there in Joshua. And so Joshua begins what a lot of us call the settlement period which is the period where the people are moving into the land of Canaan. The kings aren't there yet. They're not really a nation yet, but they are a group of people under God's instruction um, who are settling down into the land he promised to give them. What we see in Joshua is the initial success um, of the people and of God in doing this. Joshua really just heralds from the right. mountaintops that God was faithful <laughs> right. in this. God was so good. The people were faithful, but it starts to hint throughout its final chapters in particular, that the people are going to struggle to completely finish this job. Right. And it even, it'll it'll have little phrases that was like, oh, but they failed to drive out the Canaanites, or they failed to do this, or it, Dan kind of decided maybe they'd live somewhere different <laughs> right. than where God told them to live. Right. Um, and so we start to get hints that we should be, we're, we're pleased with where we are, but we're nervous about the future. Okay. And so when Joshua dies at the end of the book, we're especially nervous. And that's where Judges picks up. Okay. Exactly there. It, it picks up with Joshua's death and it says, okay, remember when you were nervous? Let me conjure that nervousness back okay. up. And it actually picks up and quotes all of those different hints about Israelite okay. failure. And it quotes them, sticks them all in a line in Judges 1 to remind us of the failure it's preparing us to, okay. to kind of trace. Right. And so Judges is like the flip side. Um, if if Joshua is the Marvel movie, Judges <laughs> is like Judges is um, I don't know. It's like a Sundance Festival <laughs> film um, where it's it's no. highly styled. I'm, no. I'm, I mean, I'm gonna roll with this. Or, yeah, this that's is good. good. This is good stuff. Uh, it is. It's dramatic. It's gritty. Um, right. But also incredibly artistic in the right. way it's set up because it has a point to yeah, make. Maybe a, uh, it's not just going to give you the plot points. Yeah, maybe a Coen Brothers film. It's an old, it's an Old Testament a thing. Coen so Brothers. Maybe film. no no country for oh, old yeah. men. Something like that. But yeah, something like not, that. Uh, yeah, it, it's not the Marvel movie of Joshua <laughs> yeah, for that's sure. Good, I like that. Um, and so. Uh, here, it just dives in and says, okay, God started this. The people started this well. They did not finish well. Right. Uh, and so the whole first chapter sets us up for that problem. They didn't drive out these folks. And, and we see this increasing pattern of failure. And, and even the language used there emphasizes more and more and more that it wasn't an Israelite society that was dominant on the ground. It was a Canaanite way right. of life that was dominant on the okay. ground. And the Israelites were just a part of it. And so then the second chapter says, well, since that's the case, right. since they failed to do these things, God did exactly what he warned them he would do at the end of Joshua. Uh, he wouldn't drive out all the peoples in front of them. Instead, he was going to make it a little bit harder okay. for them to do their job because it gives them an opportunity to learn, learn something. something. Yeah. And we can come back to that later. Um and so the whole book is kind of exploring the generations then after Joshua, but before there are kings. Um it's technically the book of Ruth happens like right in the middle of all of this okay. historically, but it prepares us most, I think, to read Samuel. Okay. Um, Samuel ends up being the, the last judge. Right. Um, and a lot of even what we see from Saul is really similar to what we saw from the judges. It's not until David that like right. a new thing new, starts. New, new start. Yeah, it, that's very interesting. Because I, I, I tell you where I struggle with this. I always talk about, you know, David's kind of this this character that is referred back to, of course, throughout the latter part of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Yeah. But Saul's the first king of Israel. But in, in a way, you're saying really yeah. he's he's kind of he's kind of like following after Samuel. Not, you know, Samuel's technically the last judge, but he's more Yeah. Samuel's the last judge, but I mean Saul sounds more from the vocabulary used about Saul, from the the the, the way his role is described, yeah. he sounds more like a judge than he does a Very king. Very interesting. Because yeah. The judges were somebody God used for a minute to do one job. Yeah. They weren't somebody that he imbued with the authority of a king that he chose. Um, and so under David, we see that kind of unleashed. But under Saul, he uses them to drive out the Philistines, but that's about okay. it. Okay, good. I appreciate that. Very, oh, That's very, very interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm like the one that hasn't done all the study like you two have. And so I'm just like sure. listening to this. I'm like, yeah, that's really cool. Like I had never thought of that. That's awesome. Fantastic. No, that's, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing the same thing. I, I haven't studied this in the way that Michelle has, obviously. It's very, very good. We appreciate that. So the other thing I always like to ask, and we, we have guests on sometimes that are that are kind of experts in an area. And you've, you've spent a lot, you, you know, when you do a dissertation on something, you've spent a lot of time with this text and you know it inside and out. Yeah. Uh, it's what, it's what, um, 
uh, Ryan's always says to me, oh, whenever we talk about John, you know, it's like I'm always using illustrations from John, that kind of thing. So here's what I always yeah. like to when, when somebody spent a lot of time on a on a book like this. What are what was it? Was there an aha moment or something that just really like clicked with you or something that made you see this text in a different way? Was there was there anything like like that for you along the way? I mean, sort of the the, the turning point for me in reading Judges the way I do um, was really taking Judges 5, the song of Deborah, really seriously. Okay. One of the things we see in Old Testament narratives is very frequently a narrator, as they're telling their story, if they want to pause and kind of sit with something and explore what it means theologically or thematically, they insert a song. Okay. Um, it's kind of like a minute to stop and reflect on what's come before, to introduce new themes. We say that especially in the book of Samuel. Sure. It starts out with Hannah kind of saying, this is what our God, our King is like. Mm. Um, and it ends with David saying, this is the kind of King I was. And it kind of draws on that. Um, we see that in Exodus after the Exodus, right. Moses pauses Song for a minute Moses. and recapitulates everything at the end of Deuteronomy. Moses does mm. it again. He writes a song to summarize everything that's happened and prepare them for what's about to happen. So for there to be a song inserted here, I was like, this has to be a big deal. Right. Um, and so reading the song in that light, instead of just skipping over it the way we so frequently yeah. do, it's like when we read Tolkien and like who reads the other songs, like one out of every well, 10 of us. I know a few people who do, but they. Yeah, I do. Obviously. Um, every word. But the point is we do that same thing, right. I think, as general right. in scripture. And so I was like, well, what if instead I, I took Judges 5 and I like made it really insightful? And it is. It's it's the word of a prophet. It's a huge, right. long prophetic speech in the middle of the book explaining what God's doing in the period. Huh. Okay. So reading the song that way was really helpful because it gave me some clarity about how the book was working and things like that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll say uh, on that question the day that the, the book became super powerful for me was when I realized what uh, a helpful word it was in our contemporary moment. Mm, okay. um, it's a moment when a lot of Christians are walking around saying things like, gosh, things are just getting worse and worse. Right. What do we do? How's mm, God going to move from right. this? And I'm kind of like, have you read Judges recently? <laughs> like, right. um, This is God has handled worse okay. um, and he's handled much worse. Uh, and so in some ways... The book of Judges is preparing us to expect God to overcome the worst of brokenness in the world. And I think that's a message we need again and again. I like that. Very good. Yeah. So mm. I, I never, so this is the only song in the book of Judges, is that correct? Or are there other little, little. Uh, yeah. There, I mean, the, in the Samson narrative, there. Right. There's a taunt sung right. by the Philistines. Um, but yeah, this is only like formal song. It's one of several divine speeches. Okay. So there are several times either a messenger or God give like a longer speech. But this is the only time where it's a formal, very long. Yeah. I mean, it's 30 verses. Yeah. Um it's the longest speech from God or his representative in oh, the that's book. That's interesting. I'd never thought of that. So so you're saying in a way it's it kind of provides an interpretive key in a different way that other things do. That's, that's, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Say, say um, more about that. Yeah. I, well, I mean, the, the already what it in the book, it pairs with the story that comes before it. So in Judges 4, we have the prose account or the story account of when um, the Israelite army defeated Sisera and Jabin mm -hmm. and the Canaanite army. Then we have the song version of it in Judges 5. So what it does, um, it's like a prophetic recapitulation okay. of that narrative. And it tells us, how would a prophet see what happened okay. here? And the other thing Deborah does is then she ties it to kind of some of the overarching troubles of the period. So she treats the battle kind of paradigmatically. Mm. Um and that makes sense within the book, because if we remember in Joshua and in Deuteronomy, the people that the Israelites were supposed to picture themselves fighting were the Canaanites. Right. When in fact, everybody that they fight in the book of Judges is from outside the land, except in Judges 4, when they actually fight the Canaanites. The Canaanites. Huh. Okay. So the battle itself, kind of just with raw data, is paradigmatic mm, to begin with. Okay. And the prophet really emphasizes that and says, this should teach you the right. way that God acts right. and how then will you respond. That's very... I have other things I want to ask you about that. Maybe, maybe we'll come back to that or, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. But that that that's fantastic. I think we could probably talk about that the rest of the time that we have available. Yeah, so, it's possible. I wrote a three hundred page. Yeah, book about I was going to say you, you may... I, I'm in agreement that 
there's more to say. You may, you may, you may. I may have some. Yeah, you may know know something to say about that. So you you've kind of talked about this already. I have this idea of uh, you know there's ugly behavior and 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 w- what do you think we learned from this? I guess you've already given us some. Do you have anything else to say about this? The ugly behavior of judges is kind of what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Well, in part, as I read that and thought about that question, I mean, like. I would want to use as many real words as possible. I would want to use a stronger word ugly, than ugly. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I'm not giving you a hard time. Yeah. But as like a kind of pastoral reflection, I do think um, one of the greatest services we can do for people as we help people read the book of Judges is um, name mm. the depth of the okay. sin we see there and use real words, use contemporary words for okay. it. Um, because our English Bibles... I mean, yep. they are they're they occasionally gloss over what's actually happening. Right. And sometimes if we tie it to real words, people can see themselves a little right. bit better in the text. And so, for example, there's sexual assault right. in the end of Judges. I probably should have given like a trigger warning, but um, hopefully. Um, but there's sexual assault there. Um, and to say that helps uh, somebody who is a victim mm. in in the contemporary context to to read that story and connect with it in a certain way. Um, and so I just really encourage people like, let's call what we have there. Right. Like, let's call it what it is. Um, and the other thing is like, we already talked about to expect that brokenness and to recognize what it is contextually, right. um, to recognize this is not God endorsing it. Right. This is God saying, this is the worst thing right. I can and imagine. This is what happens in a sense when, when things are not as they should be. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I and I yeah, you're right. And and to my credit, when I sent you that question, I did have ugly in 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 quotation marks. But <laughs> holy, I really was oh, not boy. attacking you. Brian, I'm not attacking. And I'm not okay, trying to buddy. defend myself. But you're you're absolutely right. And and I'll, um, here's where I was going to go with this. The reason I did that is because I was thinking. You know, I thought about this. Like you said, there there's sexual sin here. There are there are situations like I'm even thinking about JL. You know, the situation that she mm-hmm. finds herself in is not the way things are supposed to be, you know, the, the violence, yeah. you know, there's, there's just so yeah. many things. And I guess I could have listed all those, but that you're right. That I, I, I take the point that in some ways it's, it's the point of this book to name those things and to, to recognize yeah. the brokenness that they, they come from and the brokenness that they contribute to. So no, I appreciate Absolutely. that. That's, that's good stuff. So. Yeah. I, I got a question for you. Yeah. What kind of, I'm gonna, I've got maybe it's a dumb question, but so how do you see this fitting as like the revelation of God? You know, we see that this is all the Bible is revelation of God, and where He's revealing Himself, and then we have these horrible stories in between. I mean, from a pastoral perspective, what do you what do you what do you think God's trying to teach us through having these horrible horrible totally. highlights throughout? Yeah. Of it? Well, I mean, part of the the revelation of God is helping us understand who he is and helping us understand who we are and what's demanded of us. Um, and so I think what we see in the book of Judges, I mean, I would argue the whole book is about God proving himself to his people and then asking them to respond appropriately and then showing us exactly what went wrong okay. so that we can avoid that same misstep. So the book of Judges is introduced as people who do not know Yahweh or the great things he had done for them in in 2.11, I think, 2.10, And so to introduce them in that way, these are people who haven't caught the revelation of God. Um, And so what does he say he's going to do in the period? He says, I'm going to teach them warfare. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we all think that means he's going to train them up for battle. Um, But what we actually get in the text is he says the people who have not known warfare. He's saying, I have to fix that deficit. Mm. I need to reveal myself to them in battle because the last generation, they saw the Exodus. They saw the crossing of the Jericho, uh, uh, crossing into Jericho. They saw all that. So if that didn't happen for this generation, they need a reminder of how mighty our God is. And that should push them to respond appropriately. And so what Deborah's going to do in Judges 5 and what we're going to see in the Gideon cycle is the narrator pushing us to say, what went wrong? If God revealed himself like that, how did the people miss it? And it's going to trace it really carefully so that we, as people who have the same tendencies, can say, I have to make sure to avoid those same mistakes. Otherwise, my missteps that right now might be minor can lead to what we have in seven 17 through 21 and can eventually create um, spaces that are so broken and so marred by sin that we can victimize, you know, the most vulnerable in our midst. So 
yeah, I think it, it, it trains us, um, to make sure we avoid the same things. I mean, that's what Paul says in the new Testament. I mean, Paul will say these things happen to them as examples for you who would come now. Um, and so it, it trains us, I think, to watch how God has acted in history, to watch how people have acted in history, to recognize the same patterns in our own lives. It's good. I appreciate that. It's good. Yeah. Do you have anything else, Ryan, you wanted to say in regard to that or? No. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that, I mean, that's just my question is like, we read these ugly stories and that's usually, I'm ugly, I'm quotate, <laughs> quotation marketing, yeah. like horrible mm-hmm. stories, horrible yeah, stories of like horrible yeah, things happening. And you know, that can be the thing that some people read this and kind of going, whoa, what am I supposed to get from this, you know, yeah. like, and, oh, God loves us, but whoa, yeah. this is happening. Um, you know, it's it's the red flag for some people, you know, it's kind of yeah. like, I, and it's it, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but kind of going, okay, if if this is inspiration, like we, there is something for us to learn from there. And what are we supposed to learn oh, from totally. this story that, you know, yeah. it's kind of the, the blessing and cursing and, and Deuteronomy, we got the blessing, they're in the promised land, but then there's the curse of not doing it how I wanted you to totally. do it. And that's what we see with the judges. Absolutely. Yeah. The even as you were saying that, it it, it reminded me God. Continu- you said we see something about God. We see His continued faithfulness even in the midst of this brokenness. You know, and and yeah, and repeatedly over and over again, God comes back in and and yeah, yeah. what a, what a great thing there too. So, so how about as as you know, you you give us some ideas as Christians. Then what what how would you describe kind of the takeaway or the, the, the meaning of this book for you, you said something to the effect of it, it, it really speaks to our contemporary situation, our contemporary yeah. age. How would you, how would you kind of go with that? How would I frame you know? that? Yeah. I mean, what we see in the book of judges is the initial impression that the most dangerous thing in their lives are the Canaanites, mm. the outsiders, the religious influence of the bad guys. So, um, we start the book assuming that the biggest threat to the people of God is the not people of God. Um, But by the end of the book, we find that the people don't need an external oppressor. Mm, They don't need a war. They don't need anything to actually be the most sinful people in the book of judges. The greatest atrocities in the book of judges are committed by God's people. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a timely reminder to us that we can, we can demonize whoever we want to demonize, right. whatever non-Christian organization or political party or whatever you want to say, or, you know, the liberalism of our day. I mean, I don't even know right. what words we want to use. We can, we can demonize that all we want. But the point is, if we try to gain power the way the world gains power, if we don't treat people as God's cherished creation. If we don't get on board with God's mission to touch the nations, like if, if we are not, if we are adopting the values of this world, then opposing the world is a moot point. We have become everything we're trying to oppose. And that's what we see in Folden Judges. And I mean, that's a word because we spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time gatekeeping, um, and trying to protect ourselves from external influence and yet accumulating power and influence and and all of these things that breed the environments where these kinds of things can take place. And so I think it's a it's a helpful caution yeah, in that good. regard. I, I find myself in the pulpit a lot talking about, you know, we, we, we point toward other things as the problem, but we, we have to look first at ourselves. And you're saying that in a theory. I mean, yeah. The entire Old Testament is the story of God's people failing. I I really don't understand how we as a church can sometimes get to a place where we think everybody else is the problem. (laughs) I mean, the Old Testament is a sobering story of us straying and rebelling um, and not fulfilling our job to reach everybody else. It's really hard to save people you think are the enemy. Um, It's good. and, Hmm. And the book of Judges is is pushing us to recognize God is in charge of saving. We are in charge of being faithful. Um, and we're not in charge of, um, of, I don't know, um, assuming the bad guys are, are, are out there, right, or doing- which is ironic. I get it. Cause this is a book about war against the Canaanites and I get that, <laughs> but that's part of, that's part yeah. of the power of the book. Give me, is it compliments that you kind of referred, I'm going to come back. You kind of keep referring to these last part, this last part of the book of judges and, and uh, how you see kind of the, the culmination of all this in, in a sense. And you, you just, I like exactly what you said here. It didn't take a Canaanite influence to have, give me some examples of what you mean there by that when, you know, and, and for our listeners kind of what, when you're talking about, these are the people of God being horrible on their own, basically. 
I know. Well, where do I start? Uh, well, I mean, in 17, we meet a Levite who is wandering about, which is always a problem. Um, <laughs> wandering Levites, free? Yeah. Here's what, well, Levites are supposed to be, they're like local pastors, right. frankly. Levites are supposed to be settled in a particular Levitical community right. and ministering to the people there. So already a Levite just kind of traveling about is a little worrisome because that means somebody's congregation doesn't have a preacher. Right. Um, but we also find that he allows himself to be hired um, by a particular family, right. which is also not really how <laughs> Israelite worship works. Um, and I mean, if you carefully read the Pentateuch and then carefully read chapter 17 through 18, they like quote the Pentateuch, like mm -hmm. line for line in some bits, kind of exploring exactly how worship is supposed to work under, uh. you know, under God's design, which is where there's one central sanctuary where there's a priest who, who watches these things carefully. But instead we see this Levite who should be the religious leader doing good things. He ends up in charge of like household right. gods, which right. are not, not Israelite thing. gods. <laughs> yeah all bad. And then we find then we meet the wandering tribe of Dan who has decided they don't want to settle in the land God gave them. They want a new land. Right. And what do they do? They go kill an entire unsuspecting community. And the text emphasizes that it emphasizes that it's an unwalled settlement, um, that they were peaceful. It says all of these things. We just never have those descriptions right. everywhere else to emphasize right. that this was an unjust war. Mm. Um, and they go and take this other land that God did not give them. Okay. Um, and they take the, they take the guy with them right. and the Levites like, dude, I'm, I'm into that. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the beginning of right. the counter, the counter religious movement that, right. that becomes, um, you know, the center of the Northern kingdom. Right. It's that moment. And all of these chapters trace how individual decisions have national ramifications. Yeah. And it's just like the yeah. unfaithfulness of that Levite and the small thing allowed the establishment of a rival sanctuary right. that ultimately spells the doom of the Northern, Northern Kingdom. Kingdom. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and so then... Once we get into chapter 19, of course, things get especially difficult to swallow. And this is where we meet another Levite. So at this point, we aren't expecting great things. Um, and he, um, for reasons we can't tell, uh, the, the language is hard here, which is, and we can come back to that if we care to, to talk about it. He and his wife are estranged. I, I'm saying the word wife. We can concubine, concubine is usually the word right. we find in our Bible. Right. Secondary wife is what that means. Okay. Um, in this situation, they are estranged. He's trying to woo her back. That's actually what the words say. Like he speaks kindly to her heart means woo, okay. frankly. Um, but we don't ever see him wooing, actually. We just see him sort of hanging out with their dad, which is an interesting dynamic. <laughs> but um, they eventually um, they eventually are traveling where they're going to travel back home. And to find a safe place, uh, they need to find a safe place for the night. And they have two options a Canaanite settlement, Jebus, or Gibeah, right. an Israelite settlement. And the Levites like, well, obviously the Israelites right. are the more righteous, that's, so we should hang out there. That's a safe place. And yet what yeah. we find, what yeah. we find, what unfolds there is exactly like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, right. um, where, and it's, it's word is for it? word, okay. it's using the language of Sodom and Gomorrah to help us draw the parallel, right. to show that this Israelite city is m as sinful as this Gomorrah. Canaanite city was where God rained down fire right. on them. Right. Um, and so they come in, um, the townspeople uh, attempt, they want to gang rape um, the Levite. Um, and the host says, oh, no, 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 take the women instead. And way too many people have spent way too much time arguing that that was a good thing on his part. He was being right. hospitable. And I want to say in any world <laughs> where they're considered a hospitality, like they clearly have not read the Bible you and I read. Right. It even says right there in that verse, um, he tells them, do what is right in your own eyes. And the whole, the whole back point. half of Judges yeah. says the whole point is everybody did, did what was right wrong in their own eyes. There is zero yeah. chance that this was approved by the narrator. Right. So he gives them the concubine. And I think what's most sobering um, in Sodom and Gomorrah, two angels show up and they rescue the victims and blind the perpetrators. Right. In this story, no angels show up, and it's the victim who's left grasping for 
right. um, the door frame, right. not the perpetrators. Well, in outrage, the Levite is yeah. like, I can't believe this happened. Moral indignation uh, on every page. And yet he was the one who likely threw her out into the crowd. Oh, okay. um, from, from the grammar, it really seems sure. like it was him, not the host. Um, and so the leaders get together um, and they say, well, we need, to, we need to kill everybody from this tribe um, to address this situation. If they're not going to address it, we're going to address it. They almost kill off the whole tribe. And then they're like, oh, shoot. God has a purpose for the tribes of Israel, right. and we almost we almost killed one, and so they scramble to cover up their mistake. Right, and so we see um, we see people compromise their morals to cover up right. a mistake, and so they say, "I know we promised we wouldn't give our daughters to them, so here's what we'll do: we'll pick another unsuspecting settlement and we'll steal all of the women right. to give it to them." Right, and then eventually, when that's not enough people. They steal a bunch of women from a festival in honor to Yahweh. Yeah. Um, and those women are essentially trafficked, uh, forced into marriages. You can use a lot of different sure. words to kind of help us understand the gravity of what happened. But basically, the sexual violation of one woman right. led to the sexual violation of hundreds of women. And at that point, it wasn't this mob. It was the religious leaders right. covering their tracks. Not unlike some of the um, some of the moral outrage we had against the things that were taking place in ISIS and other other communities like yeah. that. So yeah, that's that. Yeah, and and basically, we now are are left with God's people covering up or or trying to, you know, to poorly handle um, things that are happening in their midst, and then perpetrating um, more problems as they go. So. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah. things got pretty ugly there, yeah. and, and that's all. That's all us. Yeah, it, that's that's not the outsiders. And, and the, I, I appreciate you doing that, giving the specifics there, because it is it's a horrible. And like I said, when you go to teach that, it becomes you know, you, it's like you said, you have to almost warn people. This you're not going to believe this. You know, I know you've read the Bible through dozens of times, but when we really start to look at yeah. this, you're not going to believe what we find here. So, yeah, yeah. How, how did how did what attracted you to judges? Or I guess attract is probably not even the right word. How, how did you? Yeah, probably not the right word. <laughs> how, how did how yeah. did a good how did a good doctoral student like you get mixed up with a book like Judges? I guess. Is what I'm <laughs> yeah. So when I um when I worked, let's see, when I was doing my MDiv at TEDS, I took a class with Lawson Younger, who's a a world-renowned scholar, and he works in judges. And I wrote a paper on on Deborah's song mm. because I'm especially interested in in that moment when an author decides to switch genres. Right. Um, I think that's just really interesting oh, and helpful. Okay. Um, and so I wanted to work on it there. But like I said, a lot of my motivation was I saw something in this text that felt like the right message. Um, it 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 reminds us that God works in exceptional brokenness. Yeah. Um, and it also names that that brokenness is something that comes into our lives when we rebel and do things in a way other than what God has intended. Right. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's helpful. And I also know that this book is awful. Um, and I wanted to try my hand um, at bringing my perspective and seeing if my voice and whatever my voice brings might help us to read it better. Um, just because I know how hard it is. There's probably no shortage of voices on it, but I thought we just need to keep introducing voices until we can grapple with this text well. And so good. here I am That's very good. writing about the hardest stuff ever. It's been helpful. To, I mean, I, I just some of the things you've unpacked here have been really helpful to me, and I know I know our listeners will appreciate good. it as well. So what's, what are, if somebody's wanting to just <laughs> you know, they hear this and they go, oh, I got to go read Judges now, which I don't think maybe the, I, read that. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's not the reaction probably for most of our people. But it, it, if our listeners are wanting to do that, are there any good resources you'd recommend or some kind of beginning places to, to think about? Yeah, I mean, the something that jumps off the page for me, David Baldman has written a nice little kind of primer to Judges um, that's super accessible. It's called Deserting the King, mm, I think. Okay. Um, and he, it's just kind of like a thematic introduction to judges. It's really easy to read. He's got like, you know, kind of reflective questions in there. Uh, it's a inexpensive and very accessible resource. So he comes to mind. I mean, if somebody wants like a commentary, is that the kind of no, I recommendation think, I think what you, you said want me is to exactly the kind of thing I would be talking yeah. about. So that sounds like the kind of thing if, yeah. if you're going to do a, let's say a lead a small group through this book or something like that. I that think would that be, would be great. Okay, good. Yeah. So deserting the King, I think it's Lexum press. Okay. Um, 
but that would be a great resource just to start to start kind of exploring this book. Excellent. Yeah. So let me ask you just a question. You know, you're, you teach Old Testament now, and, and mostly I know you're focused on language, and, and you have been for a long time. But when you, when you teach Old Testament, there are a lot of churches that, that don't spend as much time in, in the Old Testament, perhaps, as they do the New Testament. And maybe, maybe that's okay, but, but <laughs> you're like shaking your head, no, no, that's not okay. Uh, Hard pass. <laughs> yeah. what, what would you say, if someone had, had that kind of a, a thought, what would you say is the value of, of these things? Like we have, I know you've already given yeah. us some of these things, but if, if, if you're trying yeah. to convince somebody, hey, the Old Testament's worthy of our attention, what, what would you say to them, would you say? Yeah. First of all, I'd say I get it. Like, it's so much harder. It's so much further away. I mean, we're talking about yeah. like millennia earlier than some of the stuff we read in the New Testament. And like, I get it. That's really far away from our experience and things that feel familiar. I get it. Um, the first thing I would say is it is two thirds of the story of what God did with his people. Um, and so if we only read the New Testament, um, sure, we get the end of the story and we get the glorious end. We get right. good stuff. Um, I mean, when I am writing and I wrote on Judges 19 for a full year and I read John every morning just to remind me that there was like love and light. Um, <laughs> There's a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. But um, but honestly, we watch centuries in the Old Testament of God working among people in the dirt and the grime and the ambiguity of life. And that's the thing. Life is ambiguous. We don't have a narrator following us around saying, and then... Michelle Knight made a terrible choice. You know what I mean? Like we don't have the kind of clarity of a narrator there right. to help us see what God is doing and how our actions play out right. and, and the effect of these things. But when we read hundreds of years of God and his people working through things, we are trained to understand our lives better. Right. The more we we listen to narrator interpret events on the ground, the more we listen to what God had for his people there, the more we are able to do the ambiguity and the dust and the grime of life in a broken world. Okay. Um, and of course the gospels lead us in that too. I mean, we get to see real people's stories, but they get the exceptional yeah. experience of, of walking next to, you know, Jesus right. of Nazareth, which is, this is a little bit more like our lives where God is there and active, but he's not walking among us. We don't have that kind of clarity. Right. And so we get to see people saying, we love our God, but we're not exactly sure what's happening here and watching them try to sort it out and watching where they fail and hoping that we don't fail in the same way. We also, in the Old Testament, get all the conceptual background that informs yeah. the way the New Testament writers are explaining who Jesus right. is. When I hear somebody say that Jesus is the perfect judge, that hits different for yeah. me because I live in judges. <laughs> right. Right. I know what that right, means I because saying. I have seen yeah. imperfect judges yeah. or um, when, when I get to the end of judges, all I want is for someone to save these people. Right. And so when mm. I hear Zechariah and I hear Mary talk about now, finally yeah. the oppressed are going to find release. We're going to see God save his people. I'm like, yeah, I walked with them. I know how bad they need right. this. And so it also helps us understand the problem that the new Testament is solving. If, if we don't have that problem and we don't watch that brokenness, that's where we end up with a Christianity where we feel like just living a good life might work. The Old Testament shows us that trying to live a good life without the supernatural intervention of the God of the cosmos right. does not lead us there. Um, and so we need that. Yeah, I love that. That's good. That's that. really super good. Yeah, I I. You even gave me a, a, a different insight when you're talking about the end of the book of Judges and having compassion for those. You know, I, I haven't even thought of it in that way. You, like you said, we're usually trying to understand it and and explain it and and this kind of thing. But to think, you know, to put yourself in their in their uh, position, so to speak, and like really get the brokenness and 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 how that that hurts me. That, that's good. I like that. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I straight up I cry when yeah. I read Zechariah's song yeah. because I. Feel, yeah. I feel what it would have been like for an Israelite to say, oh, my goodness, it's finally happening. Right. We have been waiting for so long. Right. Um, Reminds yeah. me of yeah. another so, guest uh, we had on. You remember when uh, John Weatherly talked about the Gospel of Luke and he was saying uh, it's a musical. <laughs> you know, you start out with all these yes. songs. That There's all these songs in it. Anyway, yeah. what were you saying, Ryan? I didn't mean so, so, Michelle, you talk about, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament's like the people in the muck and the grime. 
and and you kind of journeyed in the muck and the grime of judges, you know, like for for a long period of time. And you've already kind of alluded to this, but was there? How does it? Did, as you spent all that time in there, and I know you're looking at John, reading John every morning to see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but was there something for you, like, how did it transform how you saw the whole narrative? Was there something yeah. that, like, for you, just, like, after a year of this, like, I see this narrative so differently through Scripture? Mm. Uh, I mean, I've had that experience with the Old Testament generally. Um, but I do think what has helped me in Judges is so much of what we read in the Old Testament, we kind of just feel like it's walking in on neutral ground. I think sometimes we forget the like the fall is the background for everything in the Old Testament. So, and I know at the at one level you're like, well, yeah, but I, my point is, the fall introduces broken relationships. God had ordained this creation. He had designed every minuscule aspect of this creation to work cohesively in a unified and harmonious and peaceful manner for animals and people and people together and people to God right. to work and to have a vocation. What we see in Judges is when all of those things rebel against their vocation, we could call it their telos, their um, their purpose, the end toward which God designed them. When they rebel against that, um, and they and then and they serve other purposes and they value other things, um, we watch not only people but entire systems and institutions and the order of the cosmos kind of suffer under that. To where we can talk about all of creation groaning. Um, or we can talk about, you know, the created world actually feeling the effects of all this. Um, and so in Judges, I think it's helpful to know it's not just the sin of the moment. We're also just watching a world bathed in violence, which is something Genesis 1 through 11 talks about being kind of an effect of the fall and how violence kind of became um, just the defining attribute of humanity. Um and, and as we watch Judges, we're just like, oh, yes. I mean, I, I see that. Yeah. I see that play out. Um, but I also, Judges also prepares us, I think. Um, it introduces this idea of kind of human cyclical nature, not in some weird, like, you know, I don't know, right. not in a weird way, but mostly that we are really predictable and we act like our our parents. Or generational sin is a thing. It reminds us that we're a pretty predictable bunch. Um, and the kind of patterns that start in Judges, we see the exact same patterns in Kings. In fact, a lot of parts of Kings sound like Judges because it'll be like, and then there was a king, and then he sinned, and he was bad. And it sounds very much like the cycles we get in Judges. So it's like, okay, the Judges didn't work. Okay, the Kings don't work. Even David, who's our greatest hope, falls. So who are we going to have? Right. And then we see the prophets beg the people to recognize all of this that we've yeah. seen unfold. I mean, the prophets will even say things like, don't, don't forget what happened at Gibeah. Right. They actually refer back Gibeah. to judges as like yeah. a minute of abysmal whatever. And so I guess what judges, judges has helped me to see that cyclical pattern um, that, that – a world without God's intervention is a world handed over to their own sin. Again, to use a Pauline turn of a phrase. Um, in Judges, especially after chapter 10, God hands people over to their own sinful desires. Right. We see him say, I'm going to save you no more. Go and turn to the other gods and let's see what happens. So I feel like I'm kind of wandering about. Good. But my point is it it teaches us something about the systems and yeah. the cycles and the patterns yeah. That underlie the whole rest I, of the Bible. I really, of, of all, I mean, I really like That's what great. you said when when you said predictable, the predictable nature of humans. I think that I, I think that really explains what you're getting at with that cyclical. I really like that, and it, it's almost like what, what the phrase, the banality of evil, right? It's not it's not something yeah. special. It's not something that's no that's you know fantastic. It's just it's what happens. It's it's like you said in a, in a world without God, this is this is where we are when we do what's right yeah. in our own eyes instead of uh, yeah. Know. Well, and. The other thing about judges is that I'm I'm going off script That's here, fine. but I'm I assume you're not going to talk, you're not going to stop nope. me, so I'm just going to keep going. Nope, just let it um, happen. 
Judges highlights that this is ultimately about fear and a lack of recognizing God's saving power, which I think is another just like word for us right. and something we need from the yeah. New Testament. I mean, we always worship what we fear. That's why we talk about fearing Yahweh uh, or fearing God in wow. the Old Testament. We worship what we fear because to fear something is to assume its power over wow. you. Okay. Um, and so Judges shows that this people, they didn't fear Yahweh. They didn't understand that he was good. And who did they fear? They feared the enemy. And so whose gods did they end up worshiping? The, the enemy's gods. Uh. Um, to the extent where we can have the song of Deborah in chapter five that says, this is the God who saved you in the Exodus and he's saving you again. Right. And what is it? I think 11 verses later, 12 verses later, we have Gideon say, what have you done for us recently? We heard that you saved in the Exodus, but right. you haven't really done much. And Gideon is the paradigm of fear in the book of Judges. And we see him become the one that ushers in official idol worship right. in Judges. So Judges also gives us this crucial insight in the story of scripture that idolatry, it's not like people wake up one day and they're like, well, God's not for me. Right. That's not how it works. And yet sometimes we minimize the story to that. You choose God or you choose somebody else. I mean, that's how Joshua sets it up. I get why we get there. But that's not the true story. People start to fear other right. things. They start to assume other things have more power than God has. Right. And then we, we start worshiping those things. And so Judges traces that trajectory and helps us see that at the base of idolatry is a fear yeah, that's, that's good. of something other than the God who made all things. That'll preach. And that will <laughs> preach. So much that we do, so much of our sin is out of fear. I think that's that's good. I mm. like that. I mean, it's a great I don't like it. Yeah. I see the truth in what you say. Yeah. So. yeah, I think it, I think it pays yeah, we're, yeah. we're about done here, but let me, let me just ask you a question about your, your professor of Semitic languages. So what kind of, uh, what kind of teaching do you get to do in, in that? Is it mostly Hebrew or do you get to do some other fun stuff too? Or Yeah, my department. So, I mean, that's ultimately the name of oh, okay. my department. Um, uh, I, I do teach Hebrew. I teach Hebrew exegesis. Cool. I teach all of that. But my department teaches a variety of Semitic languages. So we teach Aramaic. We teach um, Ugaritic. We teach uh, Akkadian. We teach Syriac. Cool. I mean, uh, all sorts of things. Was there a follow-up? No, there? I just was. I just was curious about. I have no idea what half of those are. <laughs> I, I know. It's fair. I, just, I got Hebrew. I, like to, I picked that. Picked that up. <laughs> I like to bring up foreign languages sometimes just to rub them in yeah. Ryan's face. Oh my gosh, it's so fun. Yeah. yeah. No. I finished a bachelor's, guys. All right, take it and easy. And I bet it was a great bachelor's. It was a fantastic. Sure was I had so some good. New Testament professors that were fantastic. No. Well, no. So we teach all of those. I mostly teach Hebrew. Hebrew. Some of my colleagues are more of okay. the Semitic specialists, but um, we do that. Because, like, for example, the Song of Deborah yeah. has a bunch of vocab words that we don't see anywhere else in the mm. Old Testament. So we have no idea what they mean right. unless we know other ancient Near Eastern language. languages. Yeah. That's, that's something yeah. a lot of people... So, go, go ahead and talk important. about that a little bit. That's that's probably something we'd not talk... Because I'm not an Old Testament expert. But, but that's one of the differences between, let's say, the Greek of the New Testament and the Hebrew of the Old Testament is, uh, you know, the Greek of the New Testament, the vocabulary is actually relatively limited... Old Testament. I mean, we have all these once used words, not only there, but other places. That's it, it's the worst. Yeah. So, so talk a little <laughs> bit about, about that just for our listeners. Yeah. Well, you have to remember that the Old Testament records, again, millennia of history. Right. So just the sheer number of different stages of the language. Um, and we debate about how many different stages there are, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. But um, just the number of years we're covering and the way that language develops over that time, it's unreal. Um, but because of that, as as loan words get incorporated and things like that. So like in English, when we borrow uh, words from other languages, right. like I might talk about the denouement of a movie. Right. That's a French word that means or denouement right. or whatever. So the point is, as those loan words, those borrowed words make their way in. They're from all of these different cultures, not just one, right. but like a bunch of them. Right. Um, and so for us to sort out all that vocabulary, we spend quite a bit of time in other languages right. um, just to get a feel not only for what those words mean, but for the conceptual frameworks. So like Ugaritic, the reason I learned Ugaritic is because we read a lot about Baal in the Old right. Testament. The whole myth 
of Bale and his whole backstory is written in the language Ugaritic. And so to learn Ugaritic, I now can read all of this extra biblical material about Baal and about what he was like and how they thought Baal was like. So that when I read about God riding on the clouds, I can be like, oh, that makes yeah. sense because that's what everybody thought Baal could do. Um, and so those languages kind of open up a door to help us see on the ground what they would have seen on the ground um, in a new way. That's awesome. That's, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. And, and just, uh, you know, Ugaritic is very interesting to me because it's, you know, relatively it's recent so cool. in, in terms of its development and, and even being able yeah. to, for us to even be able to read it. So, yeah. So to be clear, the language didn't here, develop professors. recently. No, so no, yeah, the, the language, our understanding of <laughs> it, we were able to discover part <laughs> yeah. of it. My, my apologies. What were you saying, yeah. Ryan? I'm so sorry. There's well, a student in class. I was raising my hand yeah. in class. Um, so Ugaritic, is, is it Canaanite? Is that what the? What? Uh, yeah, it's West Semitic is what we normally would say. Um, so Ugarit, Ugarit uh, was a city-state in like way north of Israel. So like, oh, if you can picture where like Tyre and Sidon were, if you can, mm -hmm. if you have any sort of geography for that, it's up in that area. Um, and it was a short-lived little kingdom, but it was in the period where like a lot of the historical books were taking place, that's when Ugarit like flourished. And so we actually have like a, a little storehouse of writings from that time. And in the 20th century, like we dug up that library, we really sorted this language out. Um, and so a ton actually of literature on on Judges 5, for example, was written in the early 20th century because everybody was like, oh, my gosh, right. we know what this says now. Um, yeah. And you'll, you'll watch like Bible translations kind of shift yep. the way that you start seeing words because we figured out this yeah. language. Um, so Ugar, it's actually very cool. Yeah. It's it's it has a bunch to offer um, Old Testament studies just because it's West Semitic. Right. It, it's it's very near where Hebrew was developing. So the languages are really similar. Um, and. And the words they used were similar. And obviously their gods were the gods that we see in the Old Testament. So we're just learning so yeah. much about all of that culture. So you're saying there's cutting edge, cutting edge technology. <laughs> cutting edge languages. technology. Yeah, I guess well, so. I guess you could say, I mean, like we had to, we had to rewrite all of our dictionaries and right. stuff because all of a sudden we were like, oh, this is all and, different than we thought it was. And here's why I wanted to hear you talk mm -hmm. about that cool. as, as an expert in this. It's, it's fascinating to me. And and we, we're always talking about archaeology and how this is an ongoing, you know, and, and, and just the idea that there's this kind of settled under, you know, well, we finally got it. We've got it all, you know, <laughs> and, and, and. To, to explain to people, for me, it's always when I'm talking about the Gospel of John and the Dead Sea Scrolls and the influence that that had on our understanding yeah. of, of the Gospel of John. Totally. It's like people are like, well, seriously? And like, yeah, that's it's like when we discover. It's a really big deal. When we discover more about the culture and about the about the way that people talked about it, 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 it changes the way we yeah. understand these things. So, so that, Absolutely. that's why it's still, you know, it's still worthy of our attention and God chose to reveal himself in this way. It's worthy of, of spending the time to do it. So I appreciate, uh, totally appreciate what you're doing. So, yeah. So, Michelle, I think I, yes. we're about ready to wrap up here. So can you tell us like how we could find more information about you or what, what you're doing? Can you tell yeah. us how to find you? What's happening? Well, the easiest way would be to come study at Ted's with me. Um, we're having a party up here and we'd love you to join us. Um, okay. that was, uh, it's required. Okay. But uh, beyond that, um, beyond that, no, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. Um, my handle is absurd. It's M L I Z Knight. So M Liz Knight, which I hate, but there are apparently a lot of Michelle Knights in the world. So here we are. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, you, I am writing two commentaries and a textbook. So like in five years, you'll be yeah. able to read all sorts of things awesome. that I'm writing, so tell us, including a commentary on judges. judges. And, and uh, tell us the, everything you're, you're, you're writing. I want to hear about that. I'm writing a textbook for Baker Academic on the historical books as Christian scripture. Oh, cool. So that's a really fun project because I, I get to think, look at like how Christians have read this throughout the mm -hmm. centuries and what theological implications we see there and stuff like that. I'm writing a commentary on Joshua for the Bible in God's World yeah, series, I love which that is series. kind of yeah. I know it's like ethically uh, oriented, kind of yeah. just uh, tracing kind of the implications of these yeah. things in very concrete circumstances. Um, and so I'm excited about that. Uh, and then the third one is the judges commentary for Baker. Um, and that'll be um, coming out in quite some time. I think it's like 2028 or okay. something. Um, but so there's a pipeline. Eventually, <laughs> you'll be able to find these things. Right. Very good. 
Well, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we really, really yeah. enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, I hope, hope to have you back again sometime. I think I think our listeners will really enjoy this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sure you, hope Michelle. so. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com and find links there to follow us on social media. Next week, Brian and I are heading back to the book of Revelation. We will be discussing Revelation chapter 11 and the story of the two witnesses. We discuss who or what they are and their significance in the story of God. We hope you will join us for that conversation. Thanks again for listening and sitting with us at the table in the bistro. We will be back Tuesday.